0: Hello, and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt, and this is another podcast for The Diplomat, and with me today is Abby Safe. Abby is a long-term correspondent in Southeast Asia, spent a lot of time in Cambodia, and she's just released a book, Troubling the Water, A Dying Lake, and A Vanishing World in Cambodia. Abby, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Luke, thank you for having me.
0: It's a terrific read, and I really like the way You've kind of interwoven the history of the Mekong going back a thousand years and brought it right up to the present day and the problems that fishermen are experiencing with the river and all the issues that are confronting it, Uh, climate change, dams. How do you see the river now going forward? And it's quite a pessimistic outlook. Are things that bad? Do you think there's no way back?
1: You know most of the the on the ground reporting on this book took place in 2016 and 2017 a bit in 2018 2016 was a, a drought year and it was at the time you know the worst on record the lowest water level the lowest fish catch these devastating forest fires just ripped across the lake and that was the worst anyone had seen but what we've seen since 2016 so over the last six years, I suppose, Yes. is that except for 2017, every year has hit a new record low in the Mekong and then in the Tol Sap, And that's something, you know, when I was reporting it, I, I, I knew it was bad and I didn't think things would get markedly better, but I also sort of didn't expect such a, a quick decline as what we've seen. Mm-hmm. And I think it really speaks to uh, the the sort of unique trifecta that the lake is facing. So you've got climate change, you've got these hydropower dams, and you've got overfishing and illegal fishing. And nothing, you know, since 2016, that those situations have only worsened. Um, we've had another dam come online, which is the Lower season Two. Uh, that's a tributary dam, but that has really major impacts downstream. We've had, you know globally, the hottest years on record, um, year after year, and just more illegal fishing, more overcrowding. Um, So in terms of the situation, sort of, since I wrote the book, and and looking forward, to me, it it is pretty grim. And I I don't want to say it's hopeless. You know, I think there are some Signs that the, the government is, is taking this seriously. There's there's signs that China recognises the impact of upstream dams and is working more with lower Mekong countries to release the water when needed. But mm-hmm. climate change, that's really a global issue, and um, we're soon all going to see the results of that. I mean, you're in Australia, so you're, you're seeing the impacts as well.
0: Indeed. Uh, the um, MRC, the Mekong River Commission, seems to be finding, I wouldn't say teeth because it's uh, it hasn't been very strong in its ability to achieve anything except maybe get people to talk but uh, there has been releasing uh, a series of statements over the last three or four months and each one is getting kind of more and more confronting the realities of the plight of the river are you seeing that as well do you think you meant just mentioned china that there is this growing realization as late as that might be but there does seem to be this acceptance that like oh dear we may have gone too far on this
1: yeah i think that's a good point i I would completely agree with your characterization uh the thing to understand about the mrc is they are not a, a binding body and they are not an enforcement body um, and this is the problem that has sort of plagued them all along. They're an intergovernmental body that kind of tries to work with all of the lower Mekong countries but you'll have something like all of the lower Mekong countries agree no main stem dams on the Mekong and then Lao go ahead and build the Yep. so this has you know this has always been an issue for the MRC. Um, we definitely are you know the the MRC, I agree. Is, is is becoming stronger. There's a new there's a new head. He gave a speech last month, and it you know it does not mince words about what the what catastrophe is sort of awaiting um, the river and the seventy million people who depend on it. I wouldn't say this is so new for the MRC. They they had a terrific council report maybe four or five years ago where they looked at they did really in depth modeling of. Sort of the cost and benefit of all the hydro dams mm-hmm. in every iteration. If every dam was built, if only a portion of the proposed dams were built, and then also looking at climate change, you know, yep. climate change is at its worst, if it's at its not worst. And kind of even in the best case scenario, you know, downstream countries like Cambodia and Vietnam, we're just going to see billions and billions and billions of dollars in losses of wetlands and losses of fisheries and losses of of paddy, paddy land, and then of course, in the Vietnam Delta. Uh, And what was interesting about that report is Cambodia was always going to be the hardest hit because unlike Vietnam, the the country just kind of doesn't have the resources to offset these losses. Um, So the MRC is not unaware of this problem. Uh, The bigger issue is, you know, the MRC is only as good as the government's. And we see a real mixed bag in terms of what governments are willing to do whether they you know will follow their word and and really Mm -hmm. come together um and and work on these mekong issues i i don't know um i'm not you know i i I do think it's a good sign if you have this body that's stronger and stronger but again it's not an enforcement body and it's not it's not a, a it's not a body with teeth and that's
0: not its fault that's just kind of how the body is set up right uh when it comes to the funding of these dams and i'm thinking of the world bank Mm -hmm. asian development bank adb Mm -hmm. these sorts of institutions they've always been very quiet about their funding they gave the go-ahead for a lot of these dams do you think they have a case to Mm -hmm. answer particularly going forward i mean these institutions have been great at plowing money into Small impoverished countries where the elites have made well, they've done quite well out of it, but uh, the destruction that's been wrought uh, a generation, Mm -hmm. like not even a generation later, do you think uh, they need to do a rethink and uh, come forward with changing policies about uh, what happens next?
1: Yeah, gosh, Um, I have to admit this is not something I know about in detail, but there's an excellent book that came out a few years ago about a World Bank funded dam in Laos, not a not a Mekong main stem dam, but a, a major mm. dam that just devastated the local community. Um, you know, uh, we see this all across the region that these huge infrastructure projects come in. There's very little oversight. I, I think you probably remember in Phnom Penh, there was a similar one with the land titling program. Yeah. Yes, topic? I do. Yeah. And yeah, so these, you know, these, these banks, they do have their mechanisms for complaints and for, you know, ostensibly for restitution, but it's, it's a arduous process. It takes years.
0: Right. They
1: very rarely (laughs) result in, in, uh, um, anything and and by that you know when you're when you're it's one thing if you're talking about a land or a resettlement as as devastating as there is maybe there's a chance for uh kind of delete justice when you're talking about a dam reservoir that destroys a, a village and changes the, the hydrology and impacts fish migration there's kind of no one doing that so yeah it, in the in the case of most of these dams i i don't think they're funded by any of those big banks but In the case of sort of many development projects, there's, yeah, at a global level, there's a lot they have to answer for.
0: Now, you mentioned the complaints process and how difficult that is. Now, if people like yourself would struggle in knowing where to go, how to get restitution, how to fill out the complaint form, where do you start? I mean, if uh, Western educated people who have an understanding of these banks and the way they work have trouble accessing that kind of level within these bureaucracies, how would the people that you've been interviewing for your book go about it? I mean, I would imagine it'd be almost impossible. Most of these People, the fishermen and their families, uh, they don't have much of an education. They live in their own bubbles, which is basically on their boats on the Mekong River. Their fish catches have gone from twenty to thirty kilos down down to two or three kilos. As one fisherman once told me, um, he catches barely enough to feed the village cat. How, how how can these people possibly go about finding some form of uh, compensation for their losses?
1: Yeah, I mean, generally, when there are cases brought against the banks, it's done by it's done by NGOs that focus specifically on this and, and they sort of find a it's them. It's more them becoming aware of a case and that becomes a test case for them. It's or occasionally, you know, a community is working with an NGO that is aware of this and, and then takes it up. It's it's. I've never heard of it being an individual. But one thing I want to be clear about is, mm-hmm. specifically in the case of the the Tonle Sap and the Lower Mekong, I I don't think any of those dams we're talking about are funded by these banks. They're funded, um, you know, they're mostly funded by Chinese companies, which are state-owned enterprise. And so those are there's even less transparency there, even fewer um, accountability mechanisms, um, which also makes it you know doubly difficult. Mm-hmm. There's not really, there, as as weak as that resource is with something like World Bank um, or ADB becomes that much weaker when you're talking about, uh, you know, fairly opaque structures of ownership and governance.
0: Right. Uh, in, in your book, uh, you, you must have spoken to, uh, I don't know about hundreds, but perhaps a hundred over the years. <laughs> of fishermen and their mm-hmm. reaction to basically standing back and watching their livelihoods disappear. Who were your favorites? Who do you think summed up best the plight of the Mekong River? Who yeah, your fa- were who your favorites? They
1: were, gosh, there were there were there really were a lot of interesting people. What was what was nice and, and sort of a pity in terms of long term was I was able to repeatedly visit a few people not as repeatedly as i had hoped i hoped i would be able to go back and then the pandemic occurred but you know the woman I, i start the book with chang lom i i started with her because she's she's just she was great she was really we showed up at her house in 2016. she lives in this area of Praktol where you know forest fires were still burning in the distance when we were visiting um but she you know, she had sort of already replanted her garden, and she was quite elderly, and she was just pushing ahead with her life. And, you know, I think like many um, Khmer Rouge survivors, she just, she sort of was this very strong, resilient woman who just, you know, would kind of took took this terrible situation and and just wanted to move forward and, and wanted to do the best she could. And then when I visited her a year later, I remember really clearly sh- her sort of showing us around the garden, but then pointing out things that weren't growing the way they should and, and saying, you know, do you think something's wrong with the soil? Do you have any ideas? And I would, I was just very struck by her because to me, she encapsulated the situation facing so many people, which is they are really trying, you know, mm. it's not like. It's not like things are getting tough and they're sort of giving up. They are doing everything that they can to eke yep. out a living, to eke out a livelihood. But the forces they're fighting up against are just so difficult and so kind of beyond the pale. Um,
0: I thought you nailed it quite well in that there's a lot of factors impacting on the Mekong River. Uh, you mentioned the um, the ease with which Khmers blame the Vietnamese and the Yuan, for for want of a better term, which is highly derogatory mm-hmm. in some quarters, the use of illegal fishing nets. There's also other issues too, like sand dredging. Where do you start and where do you finish in terms of dealing with these problems? Like the MRC tends to deal more so now with dams and climate change, but there are all these mm-hmm. other issues afflicting the river, and uh, there doesn't seem to be one body, there doesn't seem to be one government institution that's capable of managing the river itself within say Cambodia within Vietnam Mm -hmm. it seems to be kicking the can from one country to another
1: sure I mean what I would say and what I kind of talk about in the book is there is a lot that could be done sort of immediately to help this situation in the lake a lot even if you couldn't fix the hydrology and even if You know you can't do anything about climate change. Things could be done to stop overfishing and illegal fishing. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is is a really blunt instrument. So, for instance, in the last few months, there's been a real crackdown on illegal fishing in the Tonle Sap, and a crackdown on on illegal illegal use of farmland. You know, cutting down the flooded forest around the Tonle Sap, and that's great, that's important, but we need to ask who this crackdown is affecting and how it's being implemented, because typically these crackdowns, they really go after the, the sort of smallest people, the most vulnerable people. They're not going after the big illegal offenders. Um, they're not going after corrupt officials that are allowing large-scale illegal fishing to happen. And sort of unless there's a real anti-corruption drive, I don't see these these problems stopping. The people who are illegal fishing, who are small scale fishers, they're doing this out of pure desperation. You know, this is not greed. This is, if I don't use a net with a smaller hole, I can't pull in a single fish. If if I don't take, you know, a little bit of wood from the flooded forest, I can't create a fish trap. This This is real desperation that we're seeing on the lake. So is there a way to address that? I I recognize Cambodia is a very poor country, but are there ways to give people alternative vocational opportunities? Is there a way to move some of them to the land, which might not help, you know, the farm, the situation Mm. facing farmers is not great either. But anything that can give them a, a bit of money or a bit of security in a way that could help the fish stocks would be a major help. But again, if you're only going after the small people and large scale illegal fishing is quietly continuing, nothing's gonna, you know, this is not gonna, this is not gonna save the lake and its fisheries either. So to that end, I, I do think there are real concrete things that can be done even if MRC countries can't get it together, even if China, you know, can't release enough water. Mm-hmm. There are on the ground things that that, could be done and should be done
0: yeah i last uh three or four weeks there were a flurry of press releases coming out of the government touting how successful their crackdown which was ordered by hun sen uh Mm. the crackdown On illegal fishing, and the the lines were, I'll get in trouble for saying it, but I thought they were rather pathetic. It's like you know, we we have arrested thirty two fishermen and seized twelve boats, you know, and Mm -hmm. along with it come these photographs of people and their families who are obviously impoverished, who obviously Mm -hmm. had nowhere else to go and are simply doing what they've always done and this just doesn't seem to be addressing the problem at all which are the bigger scale Mm -hmm. fishermen and the people who are paying bribes to get more so at a local level than than at the higher Mm -hmm. tier but it's not addressing the real issue which brings me to another point how important are fish ponds cultivating fish in the river in your book you mentioned this quite a bit and I can't see that being an answer, perhaps a short-term substitute, but cultivating fish in ponds does not seem to be a longer-term solution. And I think, as you said, it's almost an acceptance that the traditional days of the mighty Mekong are over.
1: Yeah, it's hard to know about fish cultivation. Um, What's interesting is when you look at the yields now, they're about identical, the the it's around 500,000 tons pulled from the freshwater fisheries in Cambodia. And it's around 500,000 tons pulled from the fish ponds, uh, which is a 10 or 20 fold from, from just a decade ago. Mm -hmm. So fish ponds are being utilized in a, in a big, big way. And I suspect that will only continue to grow from a, from a food security standpoint, you know, Fish is fish. Uh, Hmm. Of course, there are concerns if if chemicals are being used, but from that, you know, from that perspective, I I do think it's valid to to use this to offset the diminishing natural fisheries, but it cannot offset the diminishing livelihood because it's an investment to start up a fish pond. It's not something that your average fishermen can afford and these fishing families as you point out are you know they're really living hand to mouth and before it wasn't it wasn't like it was a lucrative livelihood but they could catch enough to feed themselves and also likely make a, a small living a fish pond is not something that's open to everyone so what we see is more and more people leaving the lake more and more migration and I have heard kind of anecdotally that with this latest crackdown there's just been a huge rise in people you know getting travel documents and going to thailand again so right it just seems like a very vicious cycle to me at the moment
0: well i guess what i'm driving at and you touched on that is to start up a fish pond and cultivate fish uh as in farming fish it's a middle-class business and this can only further squeeze out the traditional fishermen And how they've been living their lives, and they have very few alternatives. I've covered—I've forgotten how many years, but uh, I'm sure you're aware of the Cham families living on the Mm -hmm. uh, living at the back of the peninsula in uh, Phnom Penh. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember interviewing them. Uh, We did a television production on them about three or four years ago, and Mm -hmm. it was about my third trip out, and they had been promised five years earlier. That they would be given land that their Mm -hmm. families can move away from the Mekong where their livelihoods were desperately poor and -hmm. their children will be able to go to school and they uh, and it's happening now with uh, we've got commune elections coming up and elections again next year the national elections But a lot of these people are continually being promised, you know, yes, we'll give you (laughs) land, yes, we'll give your children access to schools, just wait until after the next election, which is, you Mm -hmm. know, basically thumping them down, be a good boy, do as you're told, and we'll give you what you want. But a lot of people, this just simply hasn't been delivered. There are a lot of broken promises out there.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, for the book, I, I spoke to one gentleman, Mokian, who's in his seventies and, and lives in a very tiny floating village uh, by floating village. I mean, boats and houseboats on, on the water, not, not stilted homes. So these are really, you know, the poorest of the poor. They, they, there's no land for them. And in, I was speaking to him in 2016 and 2017 just before the elections. And he was telling me, you know, they, they've said they're going to give us that land over there. If we vote for CPP, we'll get that land. And I was speaking to people in other villages who, you know, similarly had been petitioning the government for years for land. And, oh, yes, 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 we'll get that for you. We'll get that for you. And, yeah, it's one of the sort of oldest election promises. We'll we'll get you what you ask for and vote for us. Right. Yeah, there's not, you know, they, they just, what's sort of the main point is they just do not have other options. You know, they're completely stuck there unless they have some kind of assistance or unless through some magic of thrift they've managed to get a small plot of land. We can be very nostalgic about fishing and a loss of livelihood and a loss of culture and a loss of, you know, something that people have been doing for mm-hmm. generations. Most fishing families are just practical about it. You know, they, they just, they want to get by like anyone. Um, they want their kids to be able to go to school, They we want them to have opportunities that they don't have, and, and fishing is not the way. Um, yep. Instead, it's just causing you know, more and more devastation and cycles of debt and cycles of poverty. Sure. Mass
0: uh, it's probably a little outside your remit, but I'll ask anyway. There have been quite a few uh, analysts on the security side of life who have been forecasting that uh, the Mekong, lower Mekong River Basin could be ripe for civil unrest, it's, uh, I know Greg Barton at Deakin University, who's a counter-terrorist special, mm-hmm. has uh, the Mekong mm-hmm. River ranked quite highly as uh, potential threats going forward if they don't get it right. You're on the ground. You've interviewed these people. Do you think that civil unrest is a uh, potential going forward?
1: Well, I should say I, I haven't been back to Cambodia for a few years, so I'm not I'm not on the ground. I don't want to portray myself inaccurately. Sure, um, but
0: I don't think anyone would you know, argue I, it's improved.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually came to this initially from a security standpoint. Um, the first time I, I wanted to report on this, I I went to this whole, I sort of applied to go to this workshop about security issues. And I was thinking about this as a security issue. But if I'm perfectly frank, I don't know if I see that. I I think I just see we see so many people who are in very, very desperate states who are starving, who are deep in debt, whose kids are leaving home. Mm -hmm. And I don't see people grabbing arms and hitting the streets. And I think that's because these countries are really perfected their autocratic states. You know, all of these lower Mekong countries in some level or another are fairly autocratic.
0: You they, don't, a, they don't you like critics. They're
1: in June 10 Thailand, you have yeah. you have a hardcore very sort of powerful long-standing government in Vietnam and Cambodia and, and in Laos the situation is so opaque, you know, no one yeah. knows what the hell is going on there. And I think sadly like worldwide, you know, people humans just have to deal with a lot of misery. And I'm not saying that uprisings don't happen and that there's not very many brave people fighting this stuff. Even within Cambodia, there's amazing environmental activists who are fighting this stuff and are going to jail for it. But at the end of the day, I, I feel that the leaders of these countries really have people under their thumb in a way that prevents unrest. But perhaps I'm incorrect. You know, Perhaps mm. people start starving to such a degree that there is. i i don't know um yeah, yeah. i think what oh mm-hmm. if i could just add something sure. um i i think what we tend to see uh and we're already seeing this globally is climate crises push people out so every time we call someone an economic migrant and our disgusting parlance they mm-hmm. are almost always a victim of in in this day and age uh a victim of some catastrophe and more and more frequently of a climate catastrophe yeah. so you know they're not able to grow the things at home they once were their farms are not working properly there are no opportunities in their countries and they have to leave and this is the temperatures are getting higher and higher there's less and less food we're seeing this across africa we're seeing this across asia we're seeing this everywhere and it's not When we say unrest, I think the unrest we don't talk about is like the human unrest, having to leave your land and your culture and your life just to seek sustenance.
0: I remember uh, sort of 20 years ago, it was not unusual to see fishermen, farmers, people who were having a bad year, bad crops, petitioning the king in Phnom Penh. We -hmm. don't see that anymore, but if we look at the protest that dominated, say, in 2010s, up until about 2017 when the crackdown really hit, that Mm -hmm. a lot of those protests were, you know, it was the youth, they were educated, they had motorbikes, uh, Mm -hmm. they wanted change. uh, Kind of very aspirational middle class almost. And that's not the type of people we're talking about. It's a dreadful condition when these people no longer have an avenue they no longer go to Phnom Penh to petition the king it's kind of like they've just been bullied into a sort of submission whereas you're saying that the best they can do is pack up and leave and just go somewhere else
1: mm-hmm. I mean i think we do see you know these small things where people try to go to their provincial office and 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 try to petition i've i've certainly seen that following the local news in terms of land disputes which is what we've seen all along but you're completely right we don't we we, we haven't it's been years since there's been that type of large-scale protest right you know often people ask if, if it's completely hopeless and I I talk about well if Mekong nations could do this or if China could do this or if local officials could do this but I, I would say an, another reason why I don't think it's completely hopeless is I see many Cambodians on the ground who really care about these issues. You see this great groundswell among young people in particular who really are passionate about the environment and are at great risk to themselves kind of raising these issues and and asking these questions and pushing. We've seen a number of environmental activists arrested in recent years, but there's still many young people who are discussing these issues openly. And so, to me, you know, that is that is a reason for hope. You have to believe that this generation that is really fighting to better things. I, I mean, I'm, it's really inspiring. So, I, I would like to end with that, perhaps.
0: That's fine. Abby, safe. Good luck with the book. It's a terrific read, and thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Luke. This has been great.